0: For all the women, you know, like you, like so, all women who have forgotten or have been told that it's not in us, right? It's not like our hearts knowing isn't real. And what we feel in our bodies is not real. It's just hysteria that all authority and all knowing is a mental exercise that comes from outside and that's very patriarchal, you know, from religion and down to academics, like throughout, from politics, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing and the reason that we persist, when we feel like, God, it would be easier to just stop talking, is that we we have to stand up and keep going for all the women who are cheering us on and who feel like we are holding the flag.
1: I'm Alison Rice, and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists To help us explore the essence of who we are, and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind, and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more, or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. My next guest is a huge expander for me personally and professionally. Elise Lunen is the Chief Content Officer at Goop, a wellness brand that offers its audience of progressive and curious thinkers, content, products, and experiences that seek to crack open taboos and start new conversations. I think it's safe to say you're either goopy or you're not. And when you hit play on this episode, you did so identifying as one or the other. Either way, we welcome you. Now, if you listen to Goop's podcast, or maybe you've seen the Netflix special, you'll be all too familiar with Elisa's signature style of communicating. She's explored, expressed, open, articulate, and deeply reflective. It was truly an honor to get to ask her questions. In this honest conversation, Elise shares the journey from working as an editorial assistant at Lucky Magazine to leading editorial projects at Condé Nast Traveller, co-authoring books for names like Sophia Amoruso and Ellen DeGeneres, before finally settling in with Gwyneth Paltrow in 2008 to help her expand and scale Goop. She also shares some really strategic career advice, what she learned from her first mentor, why we need to continue challenging patriarchal ideals, even when people try and tear us down for it, and why Goop will never stop fighting against the silencing of all that is unseen, felt, and intrinsically known. I hope you love this one as much as I do. Here's Elise and I for Offline. So, I feel like, you know, we just had a little bit of pre-chat, so I could sort of establish myself with you. Um... I feel like now might be a good time to tell you that I actually, I know Monina quite well because she was at Who What where and we were working together. And um, I literally stalked her for like nearly a year about Goop coming to Australia. <laughs> and I was like, you have to tell them I can run it. You have to tell them. And then she stopped writing back for a while and I was like, I, doll, I totally get it. I was like in that world of like, I want to do this thing. Um But yeah, it's a funny thing talking to you now because it was something I was actually quite attached to for a long time, and I had I have you're the first person I've told apart from her and my husband. I'm such a big (laughs) fan of, obviously, what you guys do. So there you go. If you ever come to Australia, know that you've got a very hardcore. We got you. you?
0: Yeah, we um we have a lot of fans in Australia and desperately want to be here. It's hard. It's technically hard to ship, etc. Um. But it's on our list, and it's funny, it's almost intimidating because I feel like Australians are a little ahead of the U.S. and probably ahead of Goop. So in the same way,
1: people would probably be like,
0: yeah, I was into this five years ago, but we'll see.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I've always said the opposite of that, that you guys are very sort of progressive and the trends sort of hit you first and then us about 18 months later. But I guess I will say as a nation, I mean, I can't claim to speak on behalf of everyone in Australia, but I do think we we have quite a special connection to our country and our land and there's a real spirit about us, I would say. And maybe it's because we're on the other side of the world, so we become quite independent in that way, but... um. You know, it's true what people say about Australians, I think. Like, we are quite down-to-earth people and we don't take life too seriously. And I would say we're probably, yeah, yeah, more progressive. Yeah.
0: It seems like there, and this again is that we're speaking in gross generalizations here, but that there's less resistance to changing the status quo. Um, And that's Mm. for whatever reason. And maybe it is because America is such a massive country, but people really cling to what is um, and trying to convince them of the potential of what could be is sometimes a struggle and to even remind them of, you know, we're continually evolving and learning and um, there is no like here or there, but yet there's a lot of clinging when we try and challenge the status quo. So mm-hmm. maybe there's less resistance in Australia and that's what we pick up on.
1: Mm, um, This is like the exact topic I want to get into um, soon, actually, but let's start at the um, more at the beginning. Or actually, maybe we should start it now because I feel like it's an interesting thing recording through COVID-19. You know, the content creator in me is like, I don't want to date this too much. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want all of my conversations to be about this thing, but at the same time, we can't really ignore it. So we're living in you know, I guess a time of a collective pause and those of us who are privileged enough to, I think we're beginning to experience ourselves more internally. I wondered, um, what's been coming up for you in this time through that lens?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's very well put because it is, it is certainly, we're seeing the haves and the have nots, um, and those as distinct from, you know, frontline workers, frontline workers being their own special class of people right now, from doctors and nurses to delivery people and grocery workers. And then for those of us who are at home and sidelined, um it's certainly a time of exposing what has always been true that has but has becoming increasingly transparently obvious, which is that we are living in a two-class world. Um, And so the people who are in the have-not camp, and then obviously there are gradations of that within people who have, right? Um, In America, it's so dramatic where it's like three men have as much wealth as 150 million Americans. Um, Staggering, staggering inequality. And I've heard sort of the attention that everyone is bringing to it is just not that we didn't know or that we weren't aware that we don't want it to be different, but just that now we don't have all the distractions of busyness to put this off. And we're all at home pondering it, thinking about it, surrounded by our crap on every level, which is why the toilet paper shortage is such an apt metaphor (laughs) and hilarious divine joke um but we're we're at home with all of the things that we've collected and the things that we've chosen to surround ourselves with and the people we've chosen to be with or not and so i think that for the for for those who are really in a panic about paying their bills and concern for their future you know my heart goes out to you and i think it's really hard to do deep profound work when you are clutched in fear and I think it's hard to make good decisions when you're in fear. And then, you know, I'm in a privileged position um, in many ways in that I'm still employed and my husband still has his job, et cetera. And so I've been using this time to really think about, you know, as someone who I think has, because of the nature of my work and the fact that I get to speak to so many interesting people, thought leaders, I have no excuse For not knowing everything that's going on and um, how have I participated in it and how have I um, supported it and then how do I intend to live on, you know, through this and on the other side. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing, sort of a deep uh, um, inventory of my life and the, and the choices mm-hmm. that I make and the choi- how those choices are supportive or not supportive or um, how I'm spending money, you know, because I think women know this, but we vote with our dollars. So who am I choosing to support and who am I overlooking, et cetera. So I'm trying to just use this time to not let myself off the hook.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's such an interesting point of view. And I wondered also, has it been easy or hard for you to distinguish between boredom and stillness? Because I've been Mm. in and out of that sort of yo-yo myself of like, we're so, it's the easy thing to go to is to say I'm so bored, but actually we're so unidentified with self and still that we classify that as I'm bored, I've got nothing to do and I'm Mm going to go clean something or do something or you know, clean out my cupboard, whatever it might be. Has that been um, easy or hard? Have you been kind of like accepting the stillness for what it is or have you been feeling bored?
0: So I grew up in Montana and in the woods, essentially in isolation, um, which sounds, it was amazing. So I don't mean to sound like super backwoodsy, but, you know, books were my friends. I had an older brother. We played, we had horses. It was, it was amazing, but not a lot of human companionship. And my mom was so offended by the word boredom. And she, her point always to us was life is boring and there are going to be moments of boredom. Get used to it and bring a book. And so What I find not so much, I'm not, I'm certainly not bored right now, but I am numbing with busyness um, and the doing. I always have been that way. It's hard for me to simply be. And I have two small boys as well. So they make being hard because we're in constant motion over here. (laughs) Um, But what I am doing is trying to stay in action so that I don't Get stuck into too many sort of cycles of of fear and panic because that's so, um, it's in the air and it's so contagious. And so I'm making lists of things that I would like to do that would make me feel like I have. Some things are things that I've been wanting to do for years and haven't had a chance, and others are um, things that I think make me feel like I have a little bit more control than I do. So I've been sort of bouncing around between full-time job and distance learning and then trying to cook, trying to do things that are moving meditations, cooking, walking, um, and then certainly a lot of deep cleaning and organizing. And I just, I make lists of all of these, like organizing all my documents. And I like finally did a budget and (laughs) um, all of those things, which are distractions, but feel good Feel productive and feel like I'm in action and in motion, rather than stuck in thought. Because I do think I am processing a lot mm-hmm. um, and thinking a lot and trying to be in my body, but I don't. I don't. I don't want to get um, mired in it. If that makes sense. So I don't know. I'm trying to find the balance. Like it's always that. That's always the hard thing for me: the doing mm. versus the being.
1: Hmm. Oh yeah. Um. So you're Goop's chief content officer today. Um. But I thought it might be interesting for the women listening to understand how you came to work for the company, just briefly. I know all this is available on Google, but I always like hearing people's stories. Them, you know, them telling it themselves. Um, perhaps what some of your earlier roles look like. And I say, I ask that question as somebody who went into a a digital business as the weekend editor and walked out as the group publisher. And I'm such a champion for, you know, if you find a company where you can really settle in and learn, then there's nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes we are subscribed to think, oh, it's been two years, I better move on Mm -hmm. and leave and do something else. So I thought it might be interesting for people to hear what it was like to kind of stick in and then now sort of where you are within the company.
0: Yeah, I have stuck. I've been at Goop for seven, almost seven years. I kind of lose track and um, I've had other jobs, but prior to that I was at Condé Nast for almost a decade and a majority of that, I left for a little bit, but a majority of that was at Lucky Magazine, which was a, it's a now defunct shopping magazine magazine. But it was really sort of the first of its kind in a different kind of service journalism and making things like fashion and beauty fun and smart. And what we really tried to do is bust the myth that you can't be soulful and of substance and smart and not also want to buy a beautiful handbag. So... I um I believe I don't here's the thing I think when you are really in tune with yourself you know when it's time to go and typically for me that's always been at a point when I'm not learning anymore and when I've assessed any job and as you know in media if you want to make a lot of money media isn't the place to go but it's a very sort of fulfilling career path, particularly if you, you are a lifelong learner, because the subject matter is always changing. But the way I always thought about it was when you're evaluating any career opportunity, there are sort of four facets. One, maybe it's three, but you know, the comp, what does the salary look like? Um, obviously for most of us, that's a pragmatic concern. Are, is there ownership or equity and what does that look and feel like? What's the value of the brand, particularly for people who are newer in your career? It can help to have a brand name company. It's not necessarily right. And I've worked at unglamorous companies that do not have brand names. Um, But it does does help, you know, when you have been hired. I, I don't like it in the same way I went to an Ivy League college and I don't think it was worth it. I don't really believe in pedigree and I don't hire for pedigree. I don't, I don't care, but I'm putting it out there Mm. that it does help resumes rise to the stacks. And then I think the fourth thing for me, which has always been the most valuable is the education. And what are you going to learn? What are you going to have access to in terms of the other parts of the business that you might never have seen? Um, and what does that look like? And are there opportunities at the company to continue to evolve and try new things? Is there a career, is there a career path that's not necessarily even bound by what you signed up for, but that has potential throughout the organization? And then being open to that and continuing to push and evolve um, has been, I'd say, my sort of my secret power in terms of doing really well at the companies that I have been part of. Um I think part of it is that I was honestly I was single for most of my 20s and every time I would go through a bad breakup I would double down at work and just plow and I didn't have that many distractions and so it it certainly helped me and then I was just always looking for more and I I realized I don't know how or why, but and maybe this is obvious to all people, but the best way to grow is to become so indispensable and so trustworthy that you're given more and more responsibility so that doing the things that you were doing that um, don't require that much skill become not a good use of your time. And so you sort of make you grow that way. And then it makes sense to bring people in underneath to take on those functions. And at Lucky... You know, I, I had the least glamorous job. I was so happy to get a job because I graduated in o2 It was not a good time in the economy in the U.S. And jobs were scarce. And I got a, a part-time. Actually, it ended up being full-time, but it wasn't promised to be um, hourly job working on the magazine and not in, like, really unglamorous parts, like sweepstakes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I just killed it on that sample return. I, you know, I was like trafficking sweepstakes rules through legal. And I just, you know, set myself up to be the the assistant on the floor, one of the assistants on the floor who could be trusted to get things done. And so people just naturally gave me more work and I made, I was like, what can I do? What can I do to help you all? And, um, and that's that's how I worked the system. I worked it well, and um, wasn't doing samples for that long. And it's not because I ever I never complained mm-hmm. about it. I was happy to do it. And but it became literally impossible for me on a in a day to do everything that I had taken on. So that was I ended up at. Go- I know that's actually the question you asked. So I worked in magazines. I realized, this is in 2010, that we were never going to catch up with what was happening online elsewhere, that we were just so woefully behind. I was never going to learn those skills. Being a, a magazine editor at this point, I was at Condé Nast Traveler. And so I was approached about a job in Los Angeles working for a very unglamorous comparison search company. And they wanted to try to make relationships with shoppers and they made me a great offer and my husband was down and so we moved to Los Angeles and I did it because I knew that I would learn a lot and it was like going to college it was internet college I worked I was one of the only creatives it was all digital product people and engineers and SEMs and SEOs and UX designers I had no idea what any of this stuff was and it was so fun it was so hard and but I'm I'm ultimately a brand person, even though I, I really love – it was one of my favorite jobs. And so I, of course, like many people, I'm always terrified that I'm going to be unemployed and lose everything. So I've always side hustled. And I started ghostwriting books when I was in my early 20s. And um, so I started working on a book. And sometimes I co-write, started working on a book with Tracy Anderson, the trainer. And Gwyneth owns part of Tracy's business. And um, the person I was working with the most was Gwyneth. Because she was, I was writing all these class descriptions. And so from Gwyneth was in London at the time. And she would get on the phone with me to explain sort of how they worked and what the studio was going to look like that they were designing in Los Angeles, et cetera. And so we got to know each other that way. And when she moved to Los Angeles, I went to meet her just to talk about um, what, she, what her vision for Goop was. And she was curious about how to scale the editorial function. And it wasn't officially an interview, and I just had a million ideas for her. And after we talked for a long time, and then I sent her a memo, which was probably so boring. But I also feel like when you, wanna, when you want a job or when you're interviewing – share ideas, like show them what you're made of. Um, show that like, don't, don't be, um, cheap about stuff like that. Write memos, um, let them see how your brain works, how you think, how you approach problems creatively. And if they use it and they don't give you credit, that's kind of shitty, but good to know. But mo. but more often than not, it's like, it's the beginning of a dance. And, um, So we just started talking. I helped her with some stuff. I didn't join her for a few months, but I also really wanted to know that we were going to be good together. And and that's part of the other reason I like memo processes and sharing ideas and really making sure that um, their expectations and your particular talents are in line and that you guys are on the same page. It just makes it so much easier as an onboarding experience. And so that's how we met. And then here we are all these years later, married as ever.
1: Mm, I know you guys are the best. It's one of those, um, you know, one thing I've really appreciated as um, I guess a woman in publishing, but also just a woman, right, is we very rarely see the woman behind the face. And what I think has been so encouraging and refreshing is that, you know, the 2IC or whatever you would call it has been brought to the front. And I think it's so incredible, like what a show we talk about women supporting women, but I guess that's what it looks like in practice. You know, what great modeling for us that is, I find. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I have another question about, um, I guess, startups. And you've seen, um, I mean, you've been there truly since the beginning and, You've been there to see what it looks like for a startup to scale. My experience has been the moment the businesses that I've been in have hit 30 or 40, it stops feeling like a family and the culture can really suffer. What was your experience like at Goop in that phase? And then what did you do as a leadership team? to try and get people, especially what I call like the originals, right? You know, those like 10 people that have been there since the beginning and they're like, but that's not the way it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, How, what did you do as a leadership team to get people to sort of embrace scale and change? And I guess also systems and processes and HR and you've got to apply for your leave now and all of those things. So yeah, what was that time like and what did you guys do?
0: So funny, we call... um... They refer to the original people as barn people because oh, because we it was worked in, the in barn, a barn, of course. yeah, in the backyard. That's so, and good. so, a lot of barn people than eye rolling, um, but it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> to because that it does get weird, and there have certainly been points. I think for particularly for team members who have been there for a really long time, you have to control that inner impulse of impatience and irritation. And likewise, on the flip side, sort of, you have to police yourself as well on where you're being resistant to new ideas or new ways of doing things. And so I think it takes deep and ongoing emotional work from everyone of, what am I feeling in my body? Like, what is this emotion And why? And what is it telling me? And why am I triggered? Is this person threatening my need to control everything? Is this person, by suggesting that things could be done differently, um, also in some way saying that I did a bad job or that I wasn't doing it well to begin with? Like, why am I clinging to this idea that this is how it needs to be? It brings up a lot. And it is it's constant. And then, you know, sometimes you're not even aware, sometimes you're so in the culture of a company, you're so in the soup that what feels very natural to you is very strange to people who join. And, you know, Goop is a good example of um, a company that is, I don't know what our numbers are off the top of my head, but it is staggeringly female. And, um, with a lot of minority representation, and um, there are very few white straight men, um, and so that's interesting too. Whenever those people join, because it's like, oh, you are so not the you're not the majority culture here. You're, and I think that for anyone who's not um, privileged in being sort of a white male Anglo man. They, I don't know if you find this to be true. This is, and this might be just how I am, and maybe I'm alone here. But I think, as a woman, even though I've worked in companies that where there are a lot of women, um, but I see this in our CTO, who is a Mexican man as well. Like, we are trying to prove our value every day. Mm -hmm. It is never, we never take it for granted that it's expressed and we never rest on our laurels. And I see that in almost everyone who works at Goop. And I don't think that that's how it works in in sort of um, white male orgs. I think that they feel like their value is inherent and they don't need to justify it or show it, et cetera. And so I think we have like interesting cultural issues there that we're trying to move through, which is part of who we are, right? And part of the conversation that we're trying to start in culture.
1: No, it's it's, it's fascinating, actually. It's not something that I knew about um, the company. So I think it's really valuable that you shared it, and we'll talk about it a bit soon. But I guess the perception of Goop um, externally um, is not reflected internally. And I think it's like, how mm-hmm. how much energy do you expend not fighting that, but um, standing up for your company versus just getting on with doing the good work that you're doing. Certainly. Yeah. I guess that's an interesting thing, but I think valuable for you to share what the shape of your people look like, because that's, um, I just, yeah.
0: It's definitely, you know, there's a perception that we are just sort of a bunch of white ladies, super wealthy, hanging around in our airy, beautifully lit offices <laughs> and our offices are airy and beautifully lit but that is the perception just because you know Gwyneth is a larger than life persona and she leads our tribe but um it is it's really interesting for people when they come and s- actually see who is at the company um and we don't spend a lot of time what we've learned is actually Glennon Doyle on her Instagram recently had a great thing about this which is like men I'll just butcher it if I try and do it but essentially you know we get a ton of attention a lot of it is angry and we're very polarizing and we've stopped trying to dig to the bottom of it because the reality is it's not about us it's not personal it's projections and we're very, whatever it is, who people, what people, in terms of who people perceive us to be, it brings up a lot in them. And that's sort of their business. And trying to fix that or change who we are to make everyone comfortable is a waste of energy. And we've also learned like, there's no point in trying to defend ourselves or over explain ourselves. If people want to, Um, If that's their perception or they want to intentionally misunderstand or make assumptions, like, we can't do much about that. And that's okay. What's interesting to me is the people who want to be in this protracted, attached relationship with us, the sort of one way, where we're just constantly, for whatever reason, pissing them off. It's like, just detach Detach. I love that. You're so attached to me.
1: Move on.
0: Yeah. It's okay. Like you, we, we might not be, you know, if you're not into us, that's okay. We're not here to try and win you over. We're just here. And if you want to participate, that's great. But it is sort of a, like, let go, put your eyeballs elsewhere. If we are, it is not worth getting so exercised about. Mm. But yeah, I think for any woman who is doing anything where she's holding the ball And at first, everyone's cheering you on and excited, and you're darling and beloved. And then it gets to the point where it's like, well, wait, like, she needs to drop that ball. Like, who does she Mm -hmm. think she is? And I think a lot of it comes from deep work that women need to do where—and this was a conversation I was having with Glennon Doyle where— um. We were talking about envy and how that that's a sign. Like Lori Gottlieb, who wrote that amazing book, You Should Really Talk to Someone. She's a therapist. She has a she makes there's a passage in the book where she essentially says, envy points you toward what you want, which I think is so profound. And Glennon was saying, she's like, you know, the thing about women is that not only do we not know what we want, we want to believe that we don't even have wants. And so I think Mm -hmm. what we see, particularly in sort of what happens, it's often women on women um, where the attack comes. It's like, it's clearly comes from this place of like lack and sort of a, how dare you? I'm not allowing myself to do that. So Mm -hmm. what gives you the right to do that? And so I think the more we can start to understand that within ourselves... And do the work of, like, maybe that's – I'm having this reaction because, like, I want to be doing that. And that's how mm-hmm. I want to be. I think that's a much healthier conversation. I guess my point is, besides things that are really wrong and twisted, and there are a lot of things happening socially and politically that are really wrong and twisted where people are being harmed, it's like if you, you're having that reaction to someone or something, it's worth looking at it.
1: hmm <clears throat> I um I remember I don't know where you said it. It was an interview you did with someone, and I thought it was quite profound. You said um, one of the things that um, Gwyneth didn't do, and certainly Goop doesn't do, is seek permission, and that's really mm. fundamentally what pisses people off. Is there's this woman who did not ask for anyone's permission. And as a society, that's not how things are done, right? We have to kind of, particularly as women in leadership roles, we have to earn the um, Mm -hmm. permission, right? And we have to earn the authority. Whereas to your point earlier with um, men, it is just an assumed right that they have it. I have a passage from... I'm about to read Elise my favourite passage from a New York Times opinion piece written by Eliza Albert and Jennifer Block. It's called Who's Afraid of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop? The Long History of Hating on Woo. Every time I read the article, I get emotional. In fact, I cry. And it turns out Elise and Gwyneth did too. I've linked it in the show notes. And I encourage you to read it and then feel into what comes up for you. How scared are we to admit out loud that what we know to be true can't be seen, touched, proven, or quantified? It reads, um, throughout history, women in particular have been mocked, reviled, murdered, and murdered for maintaining knowledge and practices that frightened, confused, and confounded the authorities, namely the church and later medicine. Criticism of Goop is founded, at least in part, upon upon deeply ingrained reserves of fear, loathing, and ignorance about the things we cannot see, touch, authenticate, prove, own, or quantify. This is emblematic of cultural insistence that we quash intuitive measures and other ways of knowing. The sort handed down via oral tradition, which, for most women throughout history, was the only way of knowing. In other words, it's classic patriarchal devaluation. It makes me really emotional reading it because I'm like...
0: Me too. Yeah. No. I mean, as you can imagine, (sighs) that story, when it came out, was met with sort of like, I think... Cry. I think Gwyneth and I cried. And um, just sort of a finally like being seen, it was such an incredible articulation of everything that we've tried to say and what we try to stand for as a company. And to know, um, and for all the women, you know, like you, like so, all women who um, have forgotten or have been told that. It's not in us, right? It's not like our hearts knowing isn't real. And what we feel in our bodies is not real. It's just hysteria that all authority and all knowing is a mental exercise that comes from outside. And that's very patriarchal, you know, from from religion and down to academics, like throughout, from politics, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing and the reason that we persist when we feel like, um, God, it would be easier to just stop talking is that we, stand, we have to stand up and keep going for all the women who are cheering us on and who feel like we are holding the flag and who want to join us, you know? And it's like, we will not stop stop talking and we will not stop fighting and we certainly will not stop asking questions. And we will continue to push against this status quo that you mentioned that tells us that what we feel or what we know to be true in our own bodies and in our own lives isn't real. And I think we're all kind of collectively sick of it. Also, The patriarchy is not working. I mean, look at where we are in this moment in time and space. We need a new way.
1: Yeah, it's obviously like... like, get out of the way, guys. Come on. Yeah, no. I thank you for that. And I guess, yeah, yeah, we thank you. I thank you. We thank you.
0: And when it comes to the patriarchy, that it's not necessarily an attack on all men. I think what we know is that we all have feminine and masculine energy and qualities. And... Um, we need more divine feminine, and that includes we need men to be in their divine feminine as well. And when you think about it, they're they're both equally important and essential. But the divine fem- feminine is sort of the the vessel, the holding, the creative energy. It can be chaotic, but it's it's what what puts things into nature and creates. And men is you know the order. And structure around that. And that's important. We have just been entirely in our masculine. And it's important for all of us to find balance and for men to feel like they can be in their divine feminine and be vulnerable and be creative and be vessels, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, can we briefly talk about um, the Vagina Candle? Yes. Just And then I want to move (laughs) off this topic entirely because I feel like we've given it enough airtime. But, you know, there's certainly people in my life who, um, you know, they roll their eyes and I'm like, but the joke's on us. Like you don't get it. Like (laughs) this is their joke on us. So like, just talk us through like the rationale behind that of like, what was that internal conversation? Mm. Like, it was like, let's just do a candle and give them what they want. And
0: it was, well, so it's funny. It was a conversation between Douglas Little, who is an incredible um, perfume maker. He ha, he created DL & Co. I think people probably remember that candle line. And he makes, he left sort of traditional, conventional scents and moved into all naturals. And so he works with us on our um, fragrances and candles. And so he and Gwyneth were having a conversation about something, about a candle that was not yet the candle. And she made a joke, like, this smells like a vagina. And he was like, that's amazing. And um, it evolved to the, this smells like my vagina candle, which is beautiful and gorgeous. And it's funny because some people perceived it as, you know, Gwyneth doing a, like, my vagina smells better than your vagina. But the point of the candle is obviously for the, the whoever's candle that is the owner is essentially sort of a punk subversive. This smells like my vagina, and my vagina smells beautiful because mm-hmm. we've all been taught to have an aversion for our organs that were gross, that were smelly. And so anything that we can do to subvert that. We'll take we'll take that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> and they sold um, out. I mean, we could not keep them in stock. Everyone I wanted bet. to smell like vagina. So I bet
1: this is why you guys do what you what you do. Um, so your first boss, I was reading, was a lady called Kim France, and she um, is one of your mentors. I wondered if you could share with us um, what did she teach you. Hmm,
0: Kim. She is such an incredible thinker, writer, and she was not cut from the Condé Nast editor-in-chief cloth. She was an outsider. She was a rock journalist, sort of an improbable pick to lead a women's fashion magazine. And what she understood, though, and what she taught all of us was to stop devaluing the reader. And we always, you know, in a lot of women's magazines there was this, they would sort of, it's helpful for marketers, but they create these personas, right? Like our reader is named Jean and she has 2.2 kids and she lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And like, this is who she is. And so there was always this separateness, like we're over here and we're trying to figure out what Jean in Georgia wants. And Kim wanted to create a magazine for herself and her friends and friends of those friends. And it was a very different way of thinking about women's magazines and much less clinical and much less like we know best and here's this poor reader who we're catering to and likely talking down to because they would create these personas that were always lowest common denominator, et cetera. And so Kim just wouldn't do that. And we were we were always trying to write for our smartest friend. That's who we always had in our mind. Who's our smartest friend? Who's going to love this weird inside joke about some '60s cult movie? Um, and the other thing is, when you're talking about fashion, and particularly at that point in time, this is in 2000 2001. It was it was sort of the beginning of snark culture. And so Kim also was like, I'm not, we're not going to write about things that we don't like. We're not going to trash things. This is all positive, not in a Pollyanna-ish way, but like, let's only spend time on things that are are worthy of our readers' time. And so there was really no negativity like that. We weren't a magazine trying to make cheap jokes in the way that was starting to become more common, um, which is hard. It's really much easier to be snarky. But um, she also was so rigorous. So, we would do these bag guides, for example, and it would be 20 evening bags on it, and each one had a caption. And there could be no repetition no repetition of phrase, no repetition of word. Each one had to be revelatory, funny, insightful. So, you were like, oh, I get why this particular bag is part of this assortment. So, like, it was mental. Gymnastics, I think it would have been mm-hmm. easier to write for the New Yorker, to be honest. Like it was and the people who worked at Lucky were so smart, such good writers. But to do that is so I I challenge anyone. It's actually a mm-hmm. really good
1: exercise. It it's so rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um there's just those great things is in there. I remember um When I was leading, I mean, it's not as beautiful as how you've put it, but I, we just had this thing where I'd say like the basic writing bitch, like we don't want that Mm -hmm. really just like spring into spring and like, totally, please, for the love of God, do not start a story with, if you're anything like us, it's like, they're not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So many throwaway (laughs) phrases. I mean, it was so hard. I came out of, I went to Yale for English and fine arts and I came out of college being like, oh, I'm an amazing writer. I mean, I just got beat up, like beat up, like so many throwaway, like so much throat clearing, so much extraneous stuff, so many expensive words. It was expensive words.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about um, your, you in the role of leader. Um, so obviously that's something like all the roles we take on in life, we grow into these things. Um, What's been surprising and interesting to you about yourself in the role of leader? Like when you reflect on you as a leader.
0: Mm. Hmm, that's an interesting question, and the reality is that I am sort of a reluctant leader. I, um, I am much more comfortable as an you know an individual contributor and as a ghostwriter. So, like, being dragged out as, you know, from behind the curtain by Gwyneth in the last few years has been hard. Um, I really I really just try to lead by example and to be really clear about what my expectations are and what good looks like and what done looks like and how... Um, not like, oh, you can't break the rules or you can't challenge this, but to really give people a good onboarding and a clear, under- and then other mentors within the team so that they can quickly become successful and get their sea legs. And and then I see my job. I think we all crave autonomy. I think that's, you know, a competence and autonomy. And so I think I can help people with their competence as it relates to the job. And then I think the, the it's my job to get out of the way and give them what they need to be successful and to help them clear hurdles. But I am not a hands-on manager, um, and I sort of feel like I can't ask someone to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself or that I haven't done myself. And I've certainly led teams where just out of – from being a startup where I'm like, I don't really understand exactly how this works, but I can talk to you through strategy, et cetera. So I can't necessarily like build emails or, you know, I know a little bit of HTML, (laughs) but not much. Um, But for the most part, I try to just approach it from a place of I wouldn't ask you to do something that I haven't done or I wouldn't do. And these are my expectations and I know you can do it. I trust that you can do it. And if it takes you time or you need to do it from home or whatever, that's fine as long as it gets done.
1: I think that's really valuable advice, the getting out of the way. It's like we employ experts in field so that they can get on and be experts. And so the best thing that we can do is, yeah, empower them with the knowledge of what what our expectations are and what great looks like in this business and then stand aside. I think that's great leadership, isn't it? But sometimes it's hard to do in practice.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to remember too, for pe- particularly for people who are new managers, and I struggle with this as well, I struggle with this to this day, is that sometimes managers are feeling a lot of anxiety because they are no longer individual contributors and they can't necessarily point to anything at the end of the day and say that they touched it or that they made something happen. And I think that that anxiety is what drives people to get over-involved with their team's work and to get overly managey. And so I think that the more again that people are aware of that and understand and are coached through that where the expectation is we get that you're not an individual contributor you're managing and it's a lot of work and and, and time and let your team like the better your team does the better you look and that's good. But I think it's a really hard transition and hard to maintain that without, you know, feeling like you're not doing enough. And so I think people who are being managed also need to keep that in mind that it's probably being driven by feeling insecure about your own value add.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, isn't it? I um, I do some sort of personal career coaching one day a week. And um one of the things comes up is um, a lot is, you know, women who have difficult female managers and leaders and the first thing I ask them to do is just go into work tomorrow and ask if they're okay. Mm. You know, just be, and I know that can be really hard if you don't have that relationship with your boss, but oftentimes it's not about you at all, or it's not about your inability to do the job, it's that they're not coping yeah. you know, and if we can take that empathy and like meet our leaders with a bit of, hum, you know, that human touch.
0: I love that. Um,
1: some of the, you know, my most incredible team members were the ones who would say to me, Hey, are you all right? Like you actually don't seem like you've got it all in the bag. And you're like, fuck, I don't help me. <laughs> like totally. instead of going to tear me down, like asking how you can actually be a support to me. I
0: think a good – I think that's brilliant, and I think a good conversation opener to borrow something from Brene Brown is to say, you know, the story that I'm making up right now is that you think I'm doing a bad job or my job might be in jeopardy because you seem – so unhappy with my work or with me. And as you said, 99.9% of the time, it's because they got into a fight with their husband or their partner or they're worried about their mother. Like, whatever it is, it probably has nothing to do with you. But I do think for managers and people who are being managed, there's a lot of story making. And so I Mm -hmm. think calling that out and just being like, when you... um the story I'm making up when you're micromanaging me like this is that you think I'm incompetent and and that's really concerning. And how can we address it? Because it's probably not even conscious.
1: Mm-hmm. No, super powerful. Um, I have a couple more questions be- for you before I let you go. Um, you are obviously the host of Goop's podcast and, um, you know, it's unashamedly one of my favorites. And, you know, f- as a A journalist to a journalist, you are such an outstanding interviewer, and I learn so much from you, honestly, and the way you conduct Mm -hmm. your conversations. Um, I'm going to go ahead and quote Oprah because we're here. Um, She once said that the role of the interviewer is to be a surrogate for the audience, and I just love that. I wanted to explore that with you, and sort of what have you learned about um, great interviews and your role?
0: Yeah. I think about that. That's who I try to be, and I um, take it really seriously. And it's hard to know the balance of how much of myself do I inject in this versus how much do people just not give a shit about me and just want to hear from the guests. And and trying to find that balance, as I'm sure you know, is really hard. The main thing that I do, though, um, wherever it makes sense, wherever there's there's content, is I read the books, which apparently is very rare because probably 20% of the podcast guests come in and are like, "Oh, I've heard about you. You actually read." And which is staggering to me. But it calms me down because I hate feeling unprepared and it feels like the appropriate amount of respect both for the guest and then for the people who are listening. Like if I'm if I don't know what to ask, because I'm not familiar with their material, then I'm wasting everyone's time. And that's also hard because sometimes people, I think sometimes I probably jump in too much where people are like, I don't like start at the beginning. Um, But that's my main thing is how can I be most respectful to the people listening and to the guest. And to me, that's just preparation. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is what takes the time, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's the thing is we have got to be willing to put that time in. Um, I was saying to my husband this morning, and it's a funny thing, like I'm on 61, 62 episodes now. And, you know, I feel um, happy to say I feel quite confident as an interviewer. I think it's a real strength of mine, something I really enjoy doing you know, I didn't sleep a lot last night because I really respect you and I really respect your interview style. And, you know, usually when you're interviewing guests that don't have a journalistic background, it's like, well, they wouldn't know what a good interview is necessarily anyway. Um, I had this crazy dream that you were living in my mum's old house and that there was, it was so weird that there was water out the back and the Sydney Harbour Bridge was there and we couldn't find a quiet spot, and so we found this lounge out the front, and then somebody started their lawnmower, and you went over to them, and you were saying, oh, it's yeah. okay, we'll wait for you. And I was like, we can't wait. I haven't got much time. So bizarre. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm into it. We were oh, wow. We were communing across oceans.
1: Totally. Astral planning I think that is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... I'm going to let you go, but I have a final question that I ask each of my guests. And as I was explaining to you before we started recording, offline is an exploration of self, true self, and who are we without the labels. So for you, you know, you've got a pretty big label at the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. chief content officer at Goop, and, you know, you've now been on Netflix and starting to gain this really public profile, which I'm sure is quite polarizing in itself. Um, when you take all of that away and you're sitting in your truth and in your true self, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that?
0: Mm, I think that my my bigger I think we have evolving purpose all the time, but I think what I'm good at or what my my bigger purpose here is to change to help people turn on the lights or to turn on the lights for people, and I think that you can't change anyone and i learned that i'm as codependent as the next person um i actually was listening to this spiritual teacher and she calls it you know foolish wisdom it's one of the seven imbalances which is this idea that we want to save people who are otherwise capable of saving themselves maybe not in this lifetime or that we know what's best for other people um which i think we all we all are imbalanced in that way. And so I've thought about that a lot. Like you can't we can't change people. We're never going to I'm never going to make someone who loves Trump change their mind or or you know vice versa. But what I feel like I can do and what I'm good at is finding those small moments of resonance and shining the light on those for people and then it that's what happens. It's probably what happens for people who listen to you all the time. You're saying things or guests are saying things or you're bringing things out of people where it's like, oh, wait, that reframes like how I'm going to think about my whole relationship with my mother or maybe I am being a victim or why is that person triggering me? And so I feel like that's what I'm good at. And then people do the work themselves. They have to do the work themselves and but i think i'm good at distilling those moments and that's what makes me happy and like you like i love interviewing people i love doing the podcast that's my happy place at work and it's for that reason it's it's is there something small resonant that's going to hit this person's pond and then start rippling out and then they change themselves. And when enough of us start to evolve and change, like the world changes, it doesn't start the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I think I'm here for.
1: Mm. Well, I would have to agree with you. Brought me out. Skipping rocks. We're just skipping rocks. Skipping rocks. That's so nice. Um, I have to thank you so much for saying yes and giving me an hour of your time. It has Pleasure. been just everything I hoped for, and more so. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, have a good day. I guess, what are you in the afternoon now? It's about five o'clock there. So you're just finishing it's
0: up. Time to start drinking. As yes. I've just been going from coffee straight to wine during COVID. It's not
1: I great. Yeah, I I chug you.
0: water before bed as a make yeah. good, but it's bad.
1: <laughs> At least we're honest about it. Um, thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share Offline with them.